Today, what we're going to cover is the topic of febrile illnesses in the tropics. And fever is one of the most common symptoms that patients present with in tropical countries. I don't have anything to disclose for this presentation. Much of what I'm going to be speaking about will emphasize the continent of Africa, and that's for several reasons. One is that many of the infectious diseases that cause fever are most common in Africa. And then also the fact is that I spent 19 years working in Africa with a mission organization there, Campus Crusade for Christ, in the country of Nigeria. Uh, for four years, I worked in community health evangelism and then moved to the larger city of Jos in the center of the country where I developed a family medicine training program at the teaching hospital uh, there. So much of my personal experience does come from Africa, which is partly why uh, I'll be discussing a lot about Africa in my illustrations as well. But what takes place in Africa in terms of infectious diseases is often representative of what occurs elsewhere in the world as well. So what we want to accomplish in this time together is to help you be able to describe the rationale for a syndromic approach to fever in the tropics. And you'll learn more about what that means. And I'm going to list... Uh, important causes of eight common fever syndromes. This is a list of the ten most frequent diagnoses that were made in our outpatient department of the teaching hospital where I worked in Nigeria. And you can see that the six that are highlighted in yellow all are infectious diseases that can present with fever. And in fact, these six accounted for one-third of all presentations in primary care. Malaria, pulmonary tuberculosis, upper respiratory infections, urinary tract infections, HIV, and pelvic inflammatory disease. Now, this graph illustrates what we call the epidemiologic transition. And that refers to the transition from communicable infectious diseases to more non-communicable chronic diseases with increasing development. And uh, so you can see Africa has a great burden of infectious or communicable diseases that often are causes of fever, whereas as you get to more developed countries in the Americas, we see more chronic diseases like hypertension, diabetes, that cause a greater burden of disease. So in terms of evaluating the cause of fever in a patient that presents to you, it's important to consider the context in which the patient uh, presents. Is this an adult or a child with fever? Many illnesses like malaria develop acquired immunity over time, so adults don't present so much with fever as do uh, children with more serious illness. The geography of causes of infectious disease in your area is also critical in setting the context of what could be causing fever in your patient. The season of the year, is it a rainy season when malaria transmission through mosquitoes is more prevalent, or is it the dry season when, say, something like meningitis is more likely to spread? 
The duration of fever is also important in determining the cause. Many viral diseases, the fever will last for less than a week, whereas other more serious uh, bacterial infections will continue with uh, progressive fever. Malnutrition also modifies the way in which fever presents. So you may not have a high fever in a child who is severely malnourished, whereas someone who is healthy would present with fever. The immune status is important. This might relate to immunizations that the child has received or might relate to uh, immune suppression, as with someone with HIV infection who is presenting with fever. And then exposures also are an important part of the context. Is the uh, patients residing in a household where somebody has a chronic cough due to tuberculosis? Or are they living around animals that would uh, cause certain exposure risks? So when you go and work in a tropical, low-income country, you may not have the lab support that you are accustomed to here in the United States. And this may be your t the extent of your lab is a, a person with a microscope and that is able to look at body fluids and blood under the microscope. And so for that reason, we don't typically use an etiologic approach where we have to figure out what the disease is before we can start treatment. We don't have that laboratory and imaging support oftentimes that would enable us to arrive at a specific diagnosis. And so for that reason, we take what's known as a syndromic approach to fever in tropical countries. And even here in the U.S., we often use a similar approach for uh, infectious diseases that we don't necessarily know the specific cause yet. But a syndrome is a collection of signs and symptoms that occur together. And we'll go into more detail about some of the syndromes that we need to uh, consider. But in many cases, we have to provide treatment empirically without knowing the specific diagnosis. And the response to treatment is in many ways the best test of whether we made the correct diagnosis or not. So here are eight common fever syndromes that occur in uh, the tropics. You can have fever alone without many other specific symptoms other than fever. Neurologic syndromes, abdominal, pulmonary, rash, hemorrhage, bone and joint, and gynecologic syndromes. So we're going to cover each of these and consider some of the causes in each of these categories that you need to think about when you're treating people in the tropics uh, for fever. In African countries, the under 5 mortality rate reaches 15% in many of those countries. And the leading causes of mortality all relate to infectious diseases that often present with fever. Malaria, pneumonia, diarrhea, HIV infection, and measles account for two-thirds of all childhood deaths in the under-five population of children. So let's first consider fever alone as a syndrome. Now, you may have some other nonspecific symptoms that go along with the fever, like a headache or some muscle aches and pains, but 
predominantly this is concerning somebody who presents primarily with fever. The first four of these are most important. Malaria, typhoid fever, HIV, and dengue. So these are the ones that primarily are of concern to us. The others uh, are less important but shouldn't be uh, eliminated entirely, particularly in those patients who don't seem to fit one of these first four categories. So let's look in f uh, further detail at some of these uh, diseases. This is a map of malaria in the world. Forty percent of the world is, uh, the population is subject to potential malaria infection. And you can see it primarily affects tropical countries transmitted by the Anopheles mosquito. And um, this is the way we typically make the diagnosis of malaria. This is a blood smear showing ring forms of Plasmodium falciparum in the red blood cells. And the number of red blood cells that have parasites is a marker of the severity of infection. If you do have access to microscopy, that is the best way of actually confirming the diagnosis of malaria. You can also use rapid diagnostic tests, such as Optimal, but those tend to be more costly and more expensive than using simple microscopy. And typically, that would involve preparing a thick film of uh, red cells just to see if there's any malaria parasites, and then the thin film is used to, uh, to determine which species of malaria it is and the number of infected red cells. So some of the symptoms that go along with malaria, headache is a common accompaniment of malaria. And in fact, adults who are semi-immune to malaria often just present with headache. And they assume they, every headache they have many times is due uh, to uh, malaria. But in Nigeria, we found uh, in some of our studies that about half of people who present to the outpatient department had a blood smear that showed malaria parasites. So malaria, in our setting anyway, accounted for up to 50% of the presentations of patients with fever. Pallor is another uh, important sign of uh, severe malaria, particularly in children who are not immune. And children are the ones who are most susceptible to severe malaria infection because the malaria parasite causes hemolysis or breakdown of the red blood cells and leads to a severe anemia. And when that anemia gets bad enough, they develop heart failure because they can't supply enough uh, oxygen through their blood cells to the rest of the body. Cerebral malaria refers to a, a condition where the parasitized red blood cells sequester in the brain, causing uh, cerebral edema and impaired mental status that leads to convulsions and eventually coma and can if they do recover, can have permanent neurologic sequelae or blindness as a result. Labored breathing in a patient with malaria typically indicates a severe malaria infection because it is a marker of acidosis and the body is trying to breathe off the excess acid or uh, it can be a marker of the severe 
heart failure. Splenomegaly is typically not prominent in the acute stage of malaria, but we use the spleen rate, if you will, in a community to determine how endemic malaria is in an area. So if you have a lot of patients with palpably enlarged spleens, that's a marker of malaria endemicity in that and infection rates in a community if you're doing those kind of studies. Let's talk now about another fever alone syndrome, uh, uh, disease, and that's typhoid fever. In Nigeria, many times patients who didn't respond to antimalarials were then next assumed that they had typhoid. Now, that wasn't always truly the case, but typhoid is transmitted through ingestion of contaminated water or food uh, that's contaminated with salmonella typhi. And the symptoms of typhoid are a sustained high fever. The fever goes from one to four weeks in duration, uh, also typically associated with headache. They can appear apathetic, as this picture uh, shows. They can become confused and psychotic. They, one of the clues to this diagnosis is the patient also will complain of some abdominal pain and uh, have some constipation rather than uh, diarrhea with their uh, abdominal pain. Splenomegaly can accompany typhoid fever as well. The definitive way of making this diagnosis is with a blood culture. Unfortunately, that may not be available where you are working, and you may have to treat this presumptively. Uh, commonly, the Widal test is used, but it's often misinterpreted and uh, you often used to overdiagnose typhoid fever. And I probably would generally not recommend it. The other cause of a fever in tropical countries is HIV infection, particularly for fever that's going on for more than a month without any other obvious cause, is often due to HIV infection. This map shows the areas that are most highly prevalent, particularly sub-Saharan Africa. Their um, rates of HIV infection range anywhere from 5 to 35% in uh, African countries. Dengue is uh, the most common uh, mosquito-borne viral infection worldwide, and it uh, does occur worldwide in tropical countries, but it's most clinically apparent in Asia and South America. It accounts for uh, a large proportion of admissions to the hospital in children in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's characterized by marked myalgias and muscle pain. In fact, another name for this infection is break bone fever because of the severe pain that uh, goes along with it in the muscles. Also, that muscle pain can cause eye pain uh, with eye movements. A rash is a characteristic clue that you may be dealing with a dengue uh, infection causing fever. The rash has been described as a sea of red with islands of normal appearing uh, skin. And another clue to the diagnosis of dengue is finding, if you're able to do a blood uh, smear and look at the white cells and the platelets, those are typically both reduced in dengue infection.
Now, those are the four most common causes of fever syndromes in the tropics where you're just mainly having fever as the predominant symptom. Some other less common infections are leptospirosis, which is caused by contact with water that's being contaminated by animal urine uh, infected with or containing the bacteria that causes leptospirosis. Uh, this also can cause a rash, an aseptic meningitis. And one clue to this diagnosis is conjunctival injection. So they may have red eyes and uh, possibly jaundice as well. Rickettsial infections can also be a cause of fever. A clue that you're dealing with a rickettsial infection is finding an eschar or a history of a tick bite in the patient. This tick shown here is uh, rickettsia africae, which can cause uh, infection in Africa. Uh, African tick bite fever, it's called. And then scrub typhus is also uh, transmitted by chiggers. Relapsing fever typically occurs in conditions of extreme poverty, such as in a refugee camp, and it's transmitted by either uh, a soft-bodied tick or, or a louse. But one thing about those, four, those infections, leptospirosis, um, rickettsial infections, and relapsing fever is that they all respond to doxycycline as treatment. So if you um, are concerned about these possible infections, one way of seeing, uh, one way of empirically treating those is with doxycycline. All right, let's move now to some of the neurologic syndromes. These are neurologic symptoms along with fever. So, headache, altered mental status, convulsions, and coma. These are some of the alterations in the central nervous system that can uh, be accompanied by inf important infections. We've already talked about cerebral malaria, but I also here want to mention meningitis, encephalitis, and HIV. This is a young man who had meningitis, and you can see how stiff his neck is uh, when he's just supported by uh, the head. And meningitis is common uh, in uh, areas of Africa that lie in what we call the meningitis belt, which cause, uh, where transmission of Neisseria meningitidis uh, can take place typically in epidemics every 8 to 12 years. And it can go through those areas of Africa that are shown here in this map extending from east to west of, of Africa. Uh, typically occurs in the dry season just before the rains come. And meningococcal infection can also cause uh, purpura as shown in this child, these dark uh, areas of the skin that are somewhat necrotic, as you can see in this close-up uh, view. So this is another clue uh, to meningococcal infections and the fact, the context, certainly of an epidemic, can be uh, another indicator. Encephalitis in tropical countries can uh, be due to rabies, 
particularly if there's a history of a dog bite in the preceding uh, month or so, or other animal bite. Um, many of the dogs in tropical countries are not uh, vaccinated. Japanese encephalitis is of concern, in particularly in uh, Southeast Asian countries. Uh, West Nile encephalitis can occur in Africa and in uh, Asia. And then trypanosomiasis, which is caused by the bite of a tsetse fly, causes sleeping sickness, uh, which basically refers to the coma that develops with this particular type of encephalitis. And then HIV can also cause neurologic symptoms as well. And infections, uh, unusual infections related to the immunosuppression from HIV. For example, uh, chronic meningitis can be caused by tuberculosis or cryptococcal fungal infection. Uh, toxoplasmosis typically presents with uh, fever, maybe seizures, and focal neurological signs due to the mass effect of these abscesses in the brain. And then HIV itself can cause uh, symptoms of uh, uh, dementia and uh, delirium. So the next area is the abdominal syndromes. And this is fever with abdominal symptoms like abdominal pain or diarrhea. Now I mentioned already that typhoid can be associated with fever and an abdominal pain, and that's because the typh salmonella typhi affects the um, lymphoid tissue, particularly in the ileum of the small intestine. And if it continues on for you know, two, three weeks, it can actually cause a perforation of the um, uh, intestine, and that can be a severe complication of typhoid fever. In patients who present with severe diarrhea with fever, you can think of infectious colitis uh, due to some of these enteric pathogens that are listed here, particularly if the stools are also bloody. Amoebic liver abscesses present with spiking high fevers and right upper quadrant pain. And so in an area where amoeba is endemic, that is something to consider as a cause for a persistent spiking fever. Abdominal tuberculosis is, often occurs in the setting of chronic fever with abdominal swelling and pain and ascites. And then in tropical countries, we also see appendicitis, pyelonephritis, infections that we also have here in the U.S., but in the tropics, at least in Africa in particular, things like um, gall, gallstones, uh, diverticulitis are uncommon causes for ab abdominal pain and fever. And then HIV infection also can cause uh, abdominal uh, symptoms, particularly a chronic diarrhea that goes on for a month. So in a patient who's had diarrhea for over a month and they've had fever for over a month, that HIV will be high on your uh, list of possible diagnoses. So let's consider the pulmonary syndromes with fever and pulmonary symptoms like cough or shortness of breath 
And three of the major ones you need to consider here are pneumonia, tuberculosis, and again, you see HIV infection on practically all of these uh, lists. Pneumonia is the second leading cause after malaria, a second leading cause of death in children under five. And you don't necessarily need, you don't need an x-ray to make a diagnosis of pneumonia in, uh, in children or adults. Uh, in fact, in, we often use the integrated management of childhood illness uh, definition of pneumonia, which can be used by community health workers to identify people with pneumonia simply based on does the patient have, does a child have an increased respiratory rate and lower chest retractions. So these are the uh, respiratory rates that would indicate possible pneumonia and justify empiric treatment with an antibiotic, a broad-spectrum antibiotic. Tuberculosis is the leading infectious cause of death worldwide. And uh, in about one-third of the world's population is infected with tuberculosis, but only 5 to 10% of those individuals actually develop disease from, of, uh, related to tuberculosis, typically during times that their immune system is suppressed, for example, due to HIV infection. And in, um, where I worked in Africa, one-third of the patients with tuberculosis had HIV infection as the underlying cause. Those with cavities, as you can see there in the right mid-lung field, uh, are particularly infectious with um, mycobacterium tuberculosis in their sputum. The best way of making the diagnosis of tuberculosis is through a acid fast stain, a Zeal Nielsen stain of the sputum, where you can see, as shown here, these um, kind of reddish colored acid fast bacilli. And it's those cases that are sputum positive that particularly need to be treated uh, because those are the ones that are more likely to be transmitting the tuberculosis uh, to others. Hyler adenopathy is another feature of tuberculosis. You can see the enlargement there of the right lung of the right hilum. And this is particularly evident in children where it's notoriously difficult to make a diagnosis of tuberculosis because they uh, are not necessarily coughing out a lot of acid fast bacilli in their sputum. And then this is a case of miliary tuberculosis where you can see the multiple small nodules throughout the, the lungs. And this is just a marker of these small nodules scattered throughout all of the organs of the body. So the, this miliary infection would involve the brain, the liver, uh, multiple organs. And one other common manifestation or presentation of tuberculosis is with a pleural effusion. And typically, if you tap that effusion, you'll find that it's predominantly lymphocytes. That's a clue that this is a tuberculous effusion. 
and the protein will typically be greater than two and a half grams per deciliter, so a high protein and a high lymphocyte uh, count. But you'll rarely ever find any acid fast bacilli or tuberculous bacteria in this pleural effusion. So let's talk about syndromes of fever that also present with a skin rash. The ones that are most significant are measles, HIV, dengue, and other viruses. So this child has measles. He has the typical skin rash that goes along with the fever. And he's got conjunctivitis, coryza, and cough, the three C's. Um, coryza being a runny nose and then cough. So a child with those features would be a classical case of measles. And if you catch them early on in the course of their illness, you'll see these coplic spots, these white spots on the mucous membranes on the buccal mucosa of the mouth. And that is a confirmatory evidence that you have measles. This is a case of herpes zoster. Uh, basically involving the T12 dermatome on one side, blistering rash. And this is a marker of HIV infection in one of the earliest signs, oftentimes in African patients. Other uh, skin or mucous membrane manifestations of HIV include oral candidiasis, which is a marker of more advanced uh, immune suppression and low, occurs at even lower CD4 counts. And then this is Kaposi's sarcoma, these violaceous plaques on the skin and on the uh, hard palate of the mouth, which are indicators of advanced AIDS. Another rash that commonly can occur in patients with HIV infection is Stevens-Johnson syndrome. This uh, man was exposed to Fancidar, a sulfa-containing drug. So they are more sensitive to having these kind of drug uh, reactions to sulfa-containing uh, antibiotics. And that can even progress to uh, toxic epidermal necrolysis syndrome where the skin just blisters off as if they had burns. And this is another rash that's characteristic of HIV infection uh, called a pyritic papular dermatosis, just an itchy, itchy bumps on the skin that are based around the hair follicles. Now, I want to talk about uh, fever associated with hemorrhage or bleeding. And I put danger here because this is, I want to alert you as health care personnel that you should take this very, be very cautious around such individuals because this can be some uh, serious cause of transmission to healthcare workers of serious infections. So the bleeding can present as vomiting blood, hematemesis, melana, epistaxis or nosebleeds, petechiae, purpura or bleeding from uh, puncture sites of blood draws, for example. 
and Ebola virus, Lassa fever virus, Marburg virus are all causes of hemorrhagic fevers. And they're transmissible to healthcare personnel. So these patients, you really want to exercise strict blood and body fluid precautions with anybody who presents with bleeding and fever. Yellow fever is uh, also associated with hemorrhage due to liver failure. So yellow fever being called yellow because of the jaundice associated with the liver uh, failure due to that virus. Dengue can also cause hemorrhage due to the low platelet count that can occur along with uh, dengue and also uh, can present with shock as well. Typically with dengue, the Severity of the illness gets worse with repeated infections. So rather than developing immunity and having less severe illness with dengue, repeated episodes cause a more severe illness. And then relapsing fever, which we've talked about before, can also uh, be associated with hemorrhage. The next category is the musculoskeletal syndromes. This is fever with bone or joint uh, symptoms. And here are five important causes. Sickle cell disease, particularly in African uh, countries. Septic arthritis, osteomyelitis, pyomyositis, which is actually an unusual infection that occurs in the tropics where the muscles uh, develop abscesses. And then rheumatic fever, which still occurs in many tropical countries associated with uh, joint pain and heart murmur. So this is a child presenting at a, often with the first manifestation of sickle cell disease being dactylitis. You can see the swollen um, um, phalanges in the fingers. And uh, this is often indicates a vaso-occlusive crisis that occurs with sickle cell disease can be associated with fever. Uh, older children often present with uh, severe abdominal pain along with the vaso-occlusive crises or bone pain in other bones as well. This is a child who uh, had developed osteomyelitis. So presented with acute osteomyelitis there on the picture on the left and uh, swelling of the arm. Often osteomyelitis is associated with a septic arthritis in the joint, and this, if not treated adequately, can then develop into a chronic osteomyelitis shown on the picture on the right, where the bone is dead and, uh, and yet infected around it and often drains to the external surface of the skin. And then let's conclude with gynecologic syndromes where you have a woman presenting with fever and either pelvic pain or vaginal discharge. And the four considerations here are pelvic inflammatory disease, uh, tubo-ovarian abscess, which can develop as a complication of uh, pelvic inflammatory disease, uh, and then postpartum endometritis if you are dealing with a woman who has recently delivered and has foul lochia or discharge from the vagina associated with fever, and then septic abortion, which occurs when unsterile instruments are used often for 
performing abortions uh, typically outside of the, the health system. So I just want to finish by describing some other factors that you need to consider when you're working in um, low-income countries that might affect your treatment and um, management of people with infectious febrile syndromes. First of all, in many countries, antibiotics are available over the counter. And so patients will often try some of these antibiotics before they come and see you, and that can alter the way that they present, or often they don't take the antibiotic course in an adequate dose or duration and may have uh, resistant organisms as a result. The second unique factor is the limited spectrum of antibiotic choices. So many of the antibiotics that you might use as a first-line agent here for treating particular infections may not even be available or affordable to your patients in in, uh, low-income settings. So uh, being conversant with some perhaps older antibiotics like chloramphenicol or gentamicin uh, may be uh, important when you're working in those settings. Also, patients often are that don't have health insurance and have to essentially pay for their own care, their own medications, and so can often not afford a full course of antibiotics or they only can afford a couple days. And uh, that can also affect the uh, benefit of your treatment. And then finally, just be aware that some drugs can be counterfeited or adulterated. And even though the patient may say they got this antibiotic or, uh, or even purchased it at a pharmacy, it may not be a genuine uh, agent for treating infection. So, In conclusion, fever is the most common presentation of illness in tropical countries. And the syndromic approach is a practical way for the diagnosis of the most likely cause of fever in your patients and will help guide you then to the most uh, appropriate initial empiric treatment. We didn't talk a lot about treatment. Basically, once you get the diagnosis correct, you should be able to easily, you know, determine the correct treatment. So, I'll take uh, any questions that you might have related to fever in the tropics or febrile illnesses. Yes? So the question is, would, I, would we test every Stevens-Johnson for HIV? And I would say yes, because the, that's a rare enough event anyway, and HIV increases the susceptibility to that type of skin reaction or response to sulfur-containing drugs, for example, many-fold. So to see that reaction, particularly in a young adult, would definitely be a marker for HIV infection. 
a difficult question about doxycycline. Uh, is the great increase in cost of doxy affected clinical practice? Well, I can't answer that for sure because I've not been there since 2007, and I know the shortage of manufacturing uh, related to doxycycline has only been in the last year or so. And so I don't know how much that's affected things in tropical countries. Maybe somebody else knows. I know that we were able to get doxycycline very cheaply from Blessings International just this past year. Um, I, I don't think it's affected other places like that. I think it's the FDA that I mean, because much of the drugs come from India and things like that in, in Africa, for example. So. I just ordered it for a trip this month for, from Blessings, still just as cheaply at a good price, the same as it has been. Yeah. Thanks. Yes. I noticed that under Rosh's meningitis wasn't listed, and I'm assuming it's because usually meningitis isn't diagnosed without the meningeal signs. So the question is, why didn't I include meningitis under the rash syndromes? Well, I think primarily because usually the meningitis is a much more pronounced feature in, in, with the neurologic symptoms that overshadow some of the skin changes many times. But, yeah, you could certainly include it under that. Yeah, so I tried to kind of generalize what are the most prominent symptoms going along with the fever to help define those syndromes. Yes? When you're giving people with pre-literate societies with very little contact with Western ideas, talk about translation challenges in getting a real history. Well, certainly it's good to work with someone who is familiar with the culture and can translate for you and help you understand. I mean, that's um, some of the challenges that I found personally relate to, you know, beliefs about what causes illness. I mean, that's the biggest challenge that, you know, we come with a Western perspective on medicine and bacteria and viruses causing febrile illnesses whereas they may feel that this is because their neighbor put a curse on them, that they have this illness, and until we deal with that curse. But often they would either try the traditional healer first, and if that didn't work, come for Western medicine, or they would try the Western medicine first, and if that didn't work, they'd go to the traditional healer. So uh, I don't know if that answers question, or do you have a specific... Okay. Yeah, I, I think at least in the population I worked with, there was enough familiarity with taking medicine, particularly because so many, so much medicine was pushed by patent market sellers, and you know it was readily available, and, and people were pushing it all over the place. So. Um, Sign language of morning, noon, and night, huge. And you always say mouth, so just the sign language of morning, is gestures go a long, long way. Yeah, in Nigeria we just put one, 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 and that was the, you know, on the marking for the directions to tell them how to take it, or two, 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 if it was two, three times a day.
listening to the local health workers who may not have the same education as us Canadians and Americans, but know their community and their language so much better. Yes. And like for us, it was, okay, you take one, when the cows go out, and you take one, and then the sun is high up, and then you take another one, and the cows come in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly you have to determine in your context what communicates the, the best. Yes, in the back. <laughs> well, I think it's probably similar to here. I mean, part of the non-compliance issue relates to patients have to pay for, you know, the, the drugs themselves, and they may not be able to afford a full course. Uh, and so they may only get a couple days, and then they're feeling better, and then they stop taking the, medic, the antibiotic, for example. Um, but we have the same problem here. You know, people start feeling better, and they don't complete their course of antibiotic. But, um, yeah, I, you know, can't put a number on what percentage of patients are, are non-compliant and don't finish the course, but it, it's a, an issue. Um, I worked in southern Mexico for four years, and I know it's going to make everybody cringe, but sometimes what we found with increased compliance is if we had antibiotics that were normally every six hours, four times a day, we would give it every eight. Mm-hmm. And for seven days instead of ten, of course, depending on the disease right. process. And because most of these people really hadn't taken antibiotics before, they were not as sensitized to... Uh, a lot of the stuff that we have, you know, um, I mean, like one ibuprofen would work for pain in a lot of these people. Um, it seemed to really work a little bit better. And I just see that with us, too. If it's four times a day versus three times a day, it's right. uh, a little easier. Well, and a lot of the antibiotic regimens and durations have been just established by empirically and there's no, there's not a lot of good evidence necessarily that this duration has to be given for this particular disease. And many people will get better with just two days worth of an antibiotic, enough to get the bacterial load down to a level where their own immune system can take care of it. But obviously, in people who are immunosuppressed, you know that may, there are a lot of other factors that could affect the success rates. And yes. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I, I feel very fortunate to be at Mayo Clinic, which I think is a little bit shielded from some of the areas of uh, the business side of medicine in terms of my practice where I'm salary, a salaried physician and all the, a lot of the billing and other aspects are dealt with you know, somewhere else in the system. Um, the biggest challenge for me was to learn how to use an electronic medical record and, you know, basically, you know, be more detailed in my documentation uh, than I was accustomed to in Africa. Uh, and the other thing was just I had to get used to a different spectrum of disease. I was certainly active in keeping up my education uh, you know, reading journals, and so it wasn't that I was unaware of <clears throat> ADHD or well child care, but that wasn't really a part of my practice like it is now. Um, 
you know, and major, treating major depression wasn't as big a part of my practice in Africa as it is uh, in Minnesota. And I haven't seen a case of HIV yet in, uh, in Minnesota. So um, it's just a different spectrum that I had to kind of get used to a different practice. And I had to learn how to, you know, I, had, I went from a setting where I had limited diagnostic tests and imaging to where I had everything I wanted or could ever want and determining when do I get the MRI, when do I do the CT scan, when do I get the, you know, celiac disease testing, you know, all those specialized tests. So just kind of learning the how to use all the, the tests and imaging that are, were available to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, febrile illnesses in pregnant women, I think, need to be certainly taken more seriously, particularly in malaria, which can be a much more severe infection in pregnancy because of the, the their multiplication of parasites in the placenta that can. Uh, cause a, a much more severe infection in, in pregnancy. Um, so I'd say malaria is certainly the number one thing that needs to be uh, considered. Um, you know, obviously, any of these infections can occur in pregnant women, and uh, any time a pregnant woman has an infection, they're more prone to preterm labor uh, as well with a febrile illness. Um, uh, do you have any specific uh, issues related to pregnancy that you wanted me to address? Yeah, and that's why during pregnancy, antenatal or prenatal care, you know, we provide, you know, prophylactic uh, medication. At the time when I was practicing there, it was using Fancidar, you know, uh, several doses during the uh, prenatal period to reduce the risk of malaria in pregnancy. Yes? Uh, working in remote Kenya, our philosophy is pretty much with no diagnostics to treat every febrile illness in an endemic area with anti-malarials. Are we contributing to resistance? Do we need to worry about uh, the same things we would with, with other antibiotics? Uh, well, I mean, certainly the World Health Organization wants everyone that's treated for malaria to be get a correct diagnosis for malaria because, as I said, in our environment, 50% of febrile patients had positive malaria blood uh, smear. But that also means that 50%, if everybody got antimalarials, would be treated inappropriately and perhaps even, uh, I mean, having those, the... Artemisinin-based combination therapy medications, which don't, aren't that necessarily that cheap, you want to use those resources appropriately. So I would certainly recommend getting a, a diagnosis and treating based on a positive smear or a rapid diagnostic test or some evidence that it truly is malaria. If you're in an area, though, with no electricity, no microscopes, no lab techs, is, is it still appropriate to just 
empirically treat for every febrile illness in an area that's endemic? With the artemisinin in combination therapy. Uh, you know, I guess if you felt like this was a clinical presentation uh, that was consistent with malaria in a young ch- in a child, particularly, I'd say yeah, that's reasonable, because the complications can be so severe, and it partly depends on how endemic malaria is in the area, as to what the probability that it is malaria, rainy season versus dry season. Certainly, you want them to use insecticide-treated bed nets and try to prevent malaria in the community. But uh, it's reasonable, in, you know, if they fit malaria otherwise and you have no other options, I would say that would be fine. Yeah, I mean, there certainly is a lot of rotavirus and noroviruses in tropical countries as well. But um, the bacterial pathogens also are much more common than they are here. So uh, particularly in a child with high fever and diarrhea, I mean, kind of the rules that I would use were if they had a high fever, if they had uh, more than five stools a day, if they had blood in the stools, you know, that was pretty much an indicator that this is probably a bacterial um, colitis and warranted antibiotic treatment. We didn't have any culture facilities to determine is this Salmonella or Shigella or Yersinia or whatever. Um, So we... In those cases, or if their diarrhea had gone on for more than a week. Well, that was a theoretical concern, but uh, we, you know, had no way of identifying those. Um, you know, those cases with the Shiga toxin or anything that would indicate that this is, you know, shouldn't be or should be treated with uh, antibiotics. And, yeah, so often we just go by the severity of the, the presentation. Well, if we were seriously considering an infection that really had, should be treated with doxycycline, you know, like a rickettsial infection, for example, 
then we would go ahead and treat with doxycycline, you know, realizing that, you know, some discoloration of the teeth is a small price to, to pay for potentially life-saving medication. But most of the other types of infections have alternative agents that could be used. Yeah, I mean, certainly you can get uh, malarial infections that, you know, stay in, um, in this liver stage for a long period before they uh, get into the blood stage. Prim the one of primary concern in terms of life-threatening is Plasmodium falciparum, and that doesn't have a very long liver stage. And so that's not one you necessarily have to worry about it kind of reactivating, you know, years down, you know, a year later or something like that. So it's the, usually the less severe forms that, that, can, that do that. And you can always certainly uh, diagnose that with um, microscopy if you choose to do so. Or you can, you know, give uh, primaquin or something to eradicate that particular liver stage of malaria parasites, particularly in like travelers returning from those areas of the world like Plasmodium vivax uh, endemic areas. Okay, well, I think we'll conclude and thank you for coming. If you want to ask any other questions, feel free to come up.